This is the Final Word Cricket Podcast with Adam Collins and Jeff Lemon. To start this week, we have a man who is simply one of the finest cricketers to ever play the game, Kumar Sangakkara. His is a stunning record, amassing some 63 international centuries across 15 years at the very top of the sport. But with Sangakkara, it feels like his considerable achievements with Sri Lanka and stunning numbers only really scratch the surface. As the most thoughtful player of his generation, he's been able to do an enormous amount of good off the field too. For instance, via his philanthropic work or as president of the MCC from 2019 to 2021. On top of that, Sangakara remains on the vanguard of the modern game, coaching in the IPL and working as a highly sought after TV pundit. Just quickly before getting into the interview, a welcome to our new listeners who are with us for the first time on the basis of our guest today. It's great to have you here, so please do stick around in the feed and hopefully there'll be plenty there that you like from our weekly issues show to our weekend history show and plenty in between. If you really enjoy our work, it's largely funded by our listeners through our Patreon account. By submitting a pledge at patreon.com forward slash the final word, you're doing your bit to making sure that we can keep doing what we're doing. and much more of it into the future. It also gets you access to our excellent Final Word online community, which these days feels a fair bit more offline too, including this Friday afternoon, September 22, where we'll be taking the field for our annual end-of-season match against the Oval Dream Boys. So if that's your thing, please don't be shy. Jump on patreon.com forward slash the final word. All right, that's plenty from me. On to our brilliant guest, Kumar Sangakkara. It's the Final Word Cricket Podcast with Adam Collins again back in West London where we were earlier this week speaking to Ian Bell. Well, we have another wonderful uh, batsman with us today, but a lot more than that as well. Kumar Sangakkara, an all-time great. It's a pleasure to welcome you to the Final Word and where we find you at the moment, across the road from Lords, which has been something of a home ground to you over recent years as president of the MCC and all you achieved there as a player. It must be nice being in this part of town. Hello. Hi, Adam, and thank you for having me on. Yeah, it's it's lovely to be here. Um, I, I live in Dorset now, um, so I come into London a lot for work, um, also to catch up with friends. And of course, a lot of my time is spent with Sky, but once in a while I have to go into Lords and, and, and do my bit with MCC as well. Actually, I'm going there immediately after this podcast to do some recordings, um, especially looking forward to the England versus Sri Lanka tour next year. So it's it's a place I enjoy. The hotel I'm at, the Danubias, I'm always used to it now. <laughs> I know the staff very well. So, um, yeah, it's, it's lovely to be back here. It it's, feels like you're one of the former cricketers who've uh, managed it beautifully after playing to have a portfolio of responsibility, shall we say. High-profile television broadcasters, <laughs> Sky over here, ICC when there are major events on, coaching in the IPL, back where you played, of course, at the start over the last couple of years, taking a team to the final uh, in the 2022 edition. The work you do off the field, charitable work, MCC work that we've already touched on. Like you're a busy boy, but not necessarily doing one thing. Yeah, I've been I've been quite fortunate. I mean, I, a lot of the connections I built up through the years, playing wise, um, allowed me to transition quite well out of the game into doing different things. Um, the charitable part of things I was part uh, um, of right throughout my playing career. And largely thanks, first of all, to to Mutai Murlidharan mm. with his foundation of goodness, uh, of which I was a part for nearly uh, twenty years. 
And then, of course, my wife's uh, initiative back in Sri Lanka, which I was involved in, both of us were involved in at the start. It's called Ayati, which was uh, uh, Sri Lanka's uh, um, first um, national center of excellence for children with disabilities, uh, which is now up and running. And, and, and we have a wonderful board of trustees uh, in Sri Lanka that, that do an amazing amount of work free of charge uh, for children from all over Sri Lanka. And then, of course, CCC Line, those are the three charities, uh, CCC Foundation and CCC Line is a 24-7 um, anti-suicide hotline that is run, again, free of charge, anonymous first points of contact for people who are in the critical phase of uh, having, you know, issues in terms of, of, of dealing with life in, in, in Sri Lanka. So um, those have been very, very rewarding for, for me, uh, my wife and our, and our family uh, uh, from a personal sense and it's been great to be able to give, give back. In terms of business, again, it's, it's, it's connections, you know, idle conversations turning into a restaurant initiative that's, that's, you know, that's going international, that's gone international over the last 10 years and we're expanding further. In terms of coaching, um, it is something that I never wanted to really explore because I thought I'd be a, I'd be a terrible coach and I still <laughs> think I am. Uh, but, uh, uh, you know, I got a call from Manoj Batali, the majority owner of Rajasthan Royals, at probably a, a really interesting time when I was really thinking, I had refused about four or five offers in terms of being a consultant or a specialist coach uh, for quite a few international teams. And uh, this, when I had this conversation with Manoj, it was really interesting as to where he was looking to take not just Rajasthan Royals, but cricket in general in terms of data, analytics, innovation, new exposures for cricketers to try and get them developing a lot quicker, etc. So it was, it was a really interesting conversation that led me to, to take up that role as director of cricket and then of course coach of Rajasthan Royals. And you've obviously got an entrepreneurial interest as well, a flair to you and that, that extends to the, the, the video game or the, <laughs> the game that you're launching at the moment. You're, you're the co-founder of Behaviol and you've got a game that's coming out later this month. Yeah, behavioral, uh, it, it's again a conversation among friends, uh, friends that I've uh, you know, known for years and have done other investments with. And um, it, was a, it was a chat about where is cricket heading and where is technology heading. We're talking about the metaverse and all of the new innovations coming along. And we wanted to see whether we could do something in terms of a, a cricket-based game that is palatable to the you know 1.67 plus billion fans that are there to to really consume cricket in different ways we wanted to democratize access not everyone can play the game at the highest levels but then be able to play it on our platforms where they can live out their sporting dreams vicariously through the avatars that are in this game so the game is called meta 11 we had a very successful initial funding round. Uh, we have an amazing tech platform uh, that's been built to host the game. The bones of the game is fantastic. We're launching later on uh, at, at the end of, of September. Um, and you can go to meta11.com. You can register for it. You can understand how the game is, 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 is played, what it entails, because it's going to be, it's going to be fast furious and fun that's what that's what we that's that's what we call it that's what Ravi Shastri calls it because Ravi we we've got Ravi on board and that's exactly what it is it's free to play it's fun it's quick 
and initially to start off with being able to predict the outcomes of and be a part of watching uh, you know gamified viewing of the games of the avatars playing it'll then uh, progress into where you can actually design and own your avatar we want the fans to be really engaged in building this game with us building new ideas contributing their ideas in terms of how to build the game and it's all about engagement and having fans come in understand what we're doing be really interested in it and then hold their attention attention and passion for as long as possible and it's a game for everyone uh, that's what cricket should be whether it's on an actual cricketing field or whether it's in a virtual stadium it's for everyone to have very easy access quick play enjoy it and hopefully through this game even the traditional gamer who has no exposure to cricket will be very interested in actually being a part of the game and understand the game and perhaps innovations from the game into real life cricket and from real life cricket into the game and there'll be a cross-pollination of ideas going down you know it's you're managing your player you have real life data that's been input into the avatars these these the ai uh, um, engine really allows these avatars they learn on the go they become better they understand how to bowl a york or when to bowl a bumper at the batter the batter in turn understands how to execute a particular stroke the more coaching um, they get, the better they become. So it's a really interesting project that morphed out of, a, of an idle conversation again. And we're right at the cusp of, I believe, something that's really going to be special. And at the end of this month, we'll have our initial, initial launch um, and, and, and then see how that goes. Kumar, I'm interested in the, the, the charitable uh, projects you were talking about earlier. What was it that drew you particularly to suicide prevention and, and crisis management as something that you and, and Yahali wanted to put your time and, and energy into helping address? Um, it was actually through a, a friend of mine, Jeda Devapura, who actually is in Australia. Um, and, and he was diagnosed with schizophrenia um, at a young age. And he and his struggles inspired him and his ability to be resilient and 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 really have a successful life allowed him to really and inspired him to set up the ccc foundation and ccc line and he brought it to sri lanka and we have a huge amount of trained counselors who give off their time voluntarily um, and the telephone number is 1333 and every year we have uh, a, a bicycle ride through Sri Lanka where we identified suicide hotspots, towns and villages that, that have a high amount of mental health issues and we do a 1,333-kilometer bike ride through Sri Lanka. Um, I've taken part a couple of times riding a few stages. Um, we, we, we meet people in the, in the towns that we ride through. We have educational conversations. We distribute leaflets, pamphlets. We have a street drama that educates people in, interactively on, 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 on mental health issues and how to just talk and how to access help and assistance and support that is needed and throughout Sri Lanka with relationship issues, exam pressures, natural disasters in terms of the tsunami, the war, foreign employment for a lot of uh, uh, mothers and families have left uh, a huge you know, vacuums in society and also 
really uh, negatively impacted uh, the mental health of so many Sri Lankans and with the lack of, uh, of uh, psychologists and psychiatrists and easy access to them in Sri Lanka means that there has to be a lot of private citizens being engaged in initiatives like this. So it was something that we were very much um, open to being involved in and it's been an association that's been over 10 years or more now. And also with CCC House, uh, there was a 190-bed halfway house built for children who come to the, the National Center for Treatment for Cancer in, 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 in Sri Lanka where they could be housed with a carer, with a parent and they can have a, a place where they can stay overnight uh, securely, safely, access to play areas and entertainment that takes their mind off the hardships that they're facing. Um, these are all great initiatives by, by the CCC Foundation that's, that's really helped uh, Sri Lankan society. I think uh, springboarding from there on to Ayati, which I mentioned was the first national center of excellence for children with disabilities. Uh, it was again, my, my wife was involved in a, a very small TV talk show. They, they talk about uh, motherhood, uh, pregnancy and early childhood health. And uh, it, it came out of that where this group of really passionate pediatric doctors came and met us and talked about the need to expand the, nationals, uh, the, the then National Center for, for Children with Disabilities into uh, something that was really helpful, that was larger, that was more efficient, better staffed, better funded, etc. And we had amazing uptake from MAS in Sri Lanka who were in, in, in a similar uh, sort of, uh, uh, sorry, HEMAS first, uh, HEMAS uh, in Sri Lanka, which is a huge conglomerate, then MAS, which is one of our largest garment manufacturers, so many passionate doctors, um, uh, and then Rohan Vijayaram, who was a private uh, donor. Um, so we had huge amounts of people involved, and the center is built, it's running, it's doing magnificent work um, in, in Sri Lanka. Um, and of course, with Murali's initiative, the Foundation of Goodness that supports about 400,000 people a, uh, a year around Sri Lanka. Um, you know, these are all things that, through association, that I became really entrenched in and really passionate about with my wife and family. And I've been very lucky that I've been able to give back. Usually what we do in these interviews is go back to the start of your cricketing journey. But I'm, I'm interested in like the intersection between what you're doing now uh, with charitable work and, and how that goes almost to your childhood growing up in Kandy in what was clearly a volatile time in Sri Lanka at the start of the Civil War, the Black July violence, the breakouts in 1983, which is where that, I guess, that, that, that conflict is said to, be, to have formally begun. Your family's involvement as well in sheltering uh, people who've been affected by that crisis at the time and, and I guess just an upbringing in a world or in a country that was going through so much internal struggle. Yeah, I mean, it's not just me or my family. There were so many um, in, in Sri Lanka who, who reached out, helped, embraced uh, our neighbours um, and, and, and friends and people who, who, needed, uh, who needed support. Um, it was also a very dark time, uh, a very disappointing and, and, um, and disgraceful time in, in our history in terms of what happened. And I think even with cricket, when, when we've started playing at club level and then on to international uh, cricket, we always, there was always a sense of, of civic duty that was there in, in the team. And it was never anything that was scripted. 
there was never a conversation uh, with the with the media team that was associated with the Sri Lankan cricket board saying, oh, this will be good for the team's media profile to go and, you know, spend some time with some children here or be involved in this charitable thing. It was it, it, it was very, very natural. It came out organically from every single member that I've been, uh, that I've known as, as a cricketer in that national side. I remember there was a time when we had a chat about man of the match awards, man of the the individual prize money that you get during games. And um, in the early 2000s, we started, uh, we started uh, a, an initiative in the team saying that, well, none of this money gets shared out. It goes into a central account. The players can't touch it, but this is for people who need help in terms of urgent medical procedures, urgent medical support. And anyone would come to us. We had the team manager and the team captain. The account was very transparently maintained. And all the monies that were earned through these individual awards went into that account. And checks were written out uh, when we had people who would come. We'd verify their need um, and, and make sure that we had all the supporting documents and that it was a legitimate request. And the monies would be then disbursed to those people in need. Um, individuals, their own foundations. Uh, I mean, Murali's one is the most significant. The amount of people that he's helped in Sri Lanka, disregarding ethnicity, caste, religion, and Murali is, is, is Tamil. Um, and he went through horrendous experiences in, in, in 1983, uh, and his family too. Uh, but the way that he has looked at Sri Lanka as as his country and the people as his own in the same way that they embrace Murali uh, throughout his cricketing career has been so inspiring to see. He has done so much good work, not just in the hill countries, not just in the south, not just in the north and the east, but everywhere in Sri Lanka with, of course, the, the, the assistance of Kushil Gunasekar who was in all that. It's, it's amazing work. So these were all things that I had around me, uh, my parents on one side, um, who drove it home to us when we were growing up, that the need to help other people and be a part of initiatives that really gave back to society. My wife was very, very passionate about uh, the same endeavors. I was surrounded by these influencers around me. Um, and uh, once that happens, it's... It's a natural progression. You, your eyes open, your heart opens, your mind opens, and then you get involved and engaged with a passion. Um, and it's not just about giving some money and stepping aside. It's actually getting your hands dirty and investing time and effort into these, uh, into these uh, um, endeavors. And I always look at people who have spent a lifetime giving back as some of the most inspiring, most special people out there that are actually making a difference. Um, and cricket, at the end of the day, is, is a game. You're not saving lives out there. It's escapism. Um, you give joy. You sometimes make people forget their troubles. Uh, it's a rallying point in terms of Sri Lanka for, for unity. At times when you needed it the most, escapism when Sri Lanka needed it the most. But being a Sri Lankan, it always came with that caveat that this is not just about you. It's about all the people who watch, support, love you. So you have a responsibility that if you are gaining something and advantaging from your career as a cricketer, it is because, of course, your talent is there, your abilities, your hard work, sacrifice, all of that comes unsaid.
but there is also that component of, of, of the public, uh, that support, that come watch, that cheer, that ride the highs and lows with you. So you have to give back when they need something. So it, this, was, this was something that was amazing about Sri Lanka cricket and I know that it still continues. Um, I can call up the team at any time for any initiative and they'll be some of the first uh, to contribute um, you know, financially or time-wise or effort-wise. So it was a wonderful uh, atmosphere and environment to be in when it came to these, uh, these charitable initiatives. You mentioned learning that from your parents, you know, being, seeing that example. And I guess the other things that you get from your parents and from your family is it, it seems like it's, it's a very education-focused household. It's a very cultural household. You're, you're singing in the choir, you're playing the violin. <laughs> I don't know if this is true, but I, I read that your favourite subjects were English literature and, and classical studies, like Greek and Roman mythology, that sort of thing. So I'm interested in that, the, the, the storytelling of, of writing and of the ancient mythology. It's all about stories. And then when you get into sport, when you start playing, a sport, you know, we're the people who write about sport and, and talk about it and we we turn athletes into these heroic characters. We sort of put them at the middle of, of the myth. I wonder if that's something that occurred to you at any point, that you were you were starting to become somebody that people were, were telling stories about and writing stories about after having been reading the stories yourself. It, it, it's, it's interesting uh, when you put it that way. Yes, I, I, unfortunately I did sing in the choir uh, and my friends haven't let me forget it uh, uh, even now. I did play the violin. My father forced me to uh, till I was about 16. Uh, and I think it, the, the experience has still scarred me and left some deep scars in terms of having to practice on weekends, etc. apart just from my sport. Uh, but yeah, it, 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 it was something that, um, that uh, you know, we were, we were really pushed to do from both our parents. Read was one thing. My father would throw me a book on a Monday and say, well, I'm asking you questions on Friday. Um, and he tried to give me lessons in history and, and, he, and even Latin at one time on a Tuesday and a Thursday. And it was like, you know, I would resist as much as I could because as a, as a kid, you just wanted time off to just go play uh, and not be forced to read all these books. But it, it became a, a habit that I really fell in love with. And, um, and you're right, I studied English literature and Greek and Roman civilization for my A-levels in school. Um, and it's, 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 it's strange because my daughter now, her favorite subject uh, is, is classics uh, at, at school. Uh, so it's, 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 it's really interesting to see that, of course, uh, the reading habit, luckily for my kids, is still there. But I think children learn very differently now to how I learned before. And they're very much into self-learning, a, a lot into critical thinking as well, which is, which is wonderful to see. In terms of storytelling, it's, it's, it's a strange paradox in Sri Lanka. We have all these historical stories uh, of our kings, of our monarchy, of legends and myths, the ten great giant generals. Uh, you know, these are stories that I grew up on of our ancient kings. Um, but when it comes to, to life as a cricketer, yes, you do get people writing about things that are salient and, and relevant and, and actual. But in Sri Lanka, I think having gone through life as we have as a society um, and being islanders um, and ex the experiences we've had re has really tempered our kind of superstar, the mythical kind of uh, 
attributing all of those characteristics to a cricketer. Uh, they, they do understand that cricket takes effort and there is athleticism and talent and amazing ability there. And you can have cricketers that become part of the history books in terms of making their mark, but it's always tempered with, with, with real pragmatism and, and, and realism where you're an islander, you're a Sri Lankan, you don't have to get too big for your boots. You know, you, it, 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 it's, it's a very interesting kind of, kind of um, life in terms of a cricketer there or anyone else. Yes, you are respected, you're loved, you're smart, but they also love to treat you just as a normal person, which is, which is exactly what you need. So I think I was very, very fortunate growing up in Sri Lanka because there was never a stage where there was no, you were never elevated to, you know, or deified or elevated to be a demigod or anything other than a cricketer who did amazing things, who people loved or, or hated, depending on how you performed. But in Sri Lanka, hate is, is for, for, for cricketers has never been that. People get disappointed, but they're always back supporting. But it is always a case of feet on the ground, head on your shoulders, do well for the country. But, uh, but there was nothing mythical or, or, or heroic about it. That grounding you're referring to, you touched on your dad before and him being a pretty tough taskmaster. He's always given really funny quotes almost to the media about you. I think it's reasonable to conclude that he's never been satisfied or quite satisfied with your output despite being one of the most prolific batsmen to ever play the game. I'm just interested in that dynamic about, you know, I suppose it's quite relatable, isn't it, having um, having people in your life who just always are willing you want to do more and more and more um, and how even how that informs the way you now parent and whether you sort of draw lessons from that or, or whether you sort of shy away from that approach or, or how you see it all uh, moulding in together. It's interesting because um, it was never about the volume of runs. It, it was always about, um, well, as a, as a fire alarm goes off, I think there's a, a, think a test. Okay. <laughs> uh, uh, it was always about the way I played the technique with which I batted. So there were days when I'd score 100 and he'd come and tell me, oh, that was absolutely awful batting. <laughs> or, you know, technically terrible. But there were other days when I'd score 15 or 20 runs and he'd say, oh, that was the best I've seen you bat. So it was never the, the century or the volume of runs or the, or the fame or anything. It was just, he was very technically driven. He had the Alexandra technique, I think one of the first books on biomechanics that came out that he then... Uh, you know, took a lot of lessons from to, to formulate his coaching theories into cricket, how the muscles should move and how your body should stabilize and accelerate, etc. Um, so it was, it was really innovative thinking and tactically also in terms of batting, how to build an innings, how to accelerate, how to take the opposition bowlers on. His mind was, was very, very tactically astute. So those were the kinds of conversations that he never really cared if they got 10,000 runs or you know, as part of the history books or anything like that. To him, it was, he had his own parameters of measurement. And as a parent now, for me, it's, it's interesting because I, I take a step back. You know, my children play hockey, both of them, and then they swim and, my, and they do athletics. Uh, and I'm not allowed to critique them on anything or talk about any of them from a coaching perspective because I got to my children, you played cricket only. We don't play cricket, so you don't know anything about the other sports. <laughs> so just just keep out. You can come and watch, but don't talk to us about about all of this. We have our own coaches, so so I kind of sit back. 
But I do insist upon certain things. You know, if they're doing something, they have to learn about it and be detailed about it so that they actually can develop a passion for it. It's no use trying something once and coming and saying, oh, that's hard, I don't want to do it. The more depth you get at it, actually, the, the better you become at it. And that in itself can engender passion and love for, for, for what you do. Uh, sometimes the difficulty is, 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 is because you, you just don't want to try it again and you think, oh, I won't love it, rather than giving it a really you know, a, a good go and then, of course, making an informed decision rather than just the initial kind of impression that you get of something. I remember watching this, uh, this, this documentary called Ramen Heads about this ramen chef in, in Japan I was on a plane going somewhere and I just switched it on and it was incredible the passion and the detail they go in to make this broth and how they watch it and how they develop it. Years and years of training and focus and, and learning for something that looks so simple but it's so complex. So that's the kind of, I think, the attitude that I take and I kind of try and talk to my children about and I get shut down quite often. Uh, but it is, I think, necessary in life to go delve deep into things that, that you're interested in and you have a passion for and a love for, but at the same time, delving deeper into something can also s inspire passion and love and, and, and dedication and effort in you. G'day guys, this is Jimmy Neesham. You're listening to The Final Word with Adam Collins and Jeff Lehman. You debuted at 22 years old, young fellow, into that team at home in Gaul in 2000. And then soon after that, you were in South Africa. You're keeping wicket at first, but by the time you get to South Africa, you're not. I'm interested in this, this innings at Centurion. You don't have the gloves. You're opening the batting after being made to follow on. And you nearly carry the bat. You're, you're the last out. You made 98 and you're a couple of runs away from avoiding an innings defeat and, and making South Africa bat again. Was that a tough one to swallow or, or was that something you were able to be pretty zen ab about in terms of getting so close to, to a few significant achievements and not quite ticking off any of them? Yeah, I, I, it, it's a strange one. Looking back now, uh, looking back a few years later, I was absolutely gutted when I realised the significance of that moment. In terms of a first hundred away in South Africa against a really, really strong South African side and pace attack, uh, the context of the game, and perhaps what it might have done uh, in terms of accelerating my development if I had really looked at it in that way. At that time, my second tour, uh, my first tour away from home. And, you know, being a young kid, not really understanding what international cricket was about, it's always about just cementing your place, score the runs, score the runs, make sure that, you know, you, you have security in the side. And I just come in and replace Ramesh Kalvitarna. I think he was also on that tour to start with. And it was, uh, it, it, it was not easy because there were, there were protests on the road when I replaced Ramesh Kalvitarna, saying, who's this young upstart replacing this legend? And it's completely undeserved. And, and I, I used to agree with that sentiment because I, I felt that I didn't deserve that opportunity. I, hadn't, I don't think I had even scored a first-class 100. So someone saw that I had some talent and, 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 and decided to, you know, get me into this international side after a couple of years playing A-team cricket. And then I remember the, 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 the most disappointing was that the ball pitched about a foot and a half outside 
um, outside leg stump and Peter Willey just raised a finger probably because it was the last wicket and probably there was an early flight to catch and uh, it is Makaya Intini bowling at me I still remember and it would have been amazing to have scored my first hundred away from home 98 uh, the rest of it at that time was, was strange later on it was all about doing your best for the side at everything whatever the side needed and it's strange initially your, it's, it's, not, it's not selfishness, it's just sometimes that lack of security, that fear you have, what will happen if I don't score the runs, that kind of focuses you on just scoring runs. Um, and sometimes just for yourself until you get into the stage where you're like, okay, now I've, made, now I've really got some runs behind me and you're able to free your mind and understand what your actual role is. And it takes a, a bit of time to, to develop in a, in a young kid, I think, always. And the environment in our dressing rooms are very different when I started to what it ended up in when, when, when I was playing. Uh, we were a lot more open and welcoming later on and, and, and very attuned to this, the, the, the psychological uh, and mental needs of players to have that security and comfort irrespective of whether they failed or succeeded. Um, so it was a very different time. With some guests on the show, we can go into great detail about all of their major achievements, but there's kind of no point just trying to do that with you because there are so many high marks. But I'm, I'm just interested in when you get on a roll there, you make your first international 100 against India, and from there, you, you really do start churning them out. The 230 against Pakistan in the Asian Test Championship final. Sounds like a pretty cool competition, right? Like, <laughs> you know, that would never exist in, in days like today, a generation on or, or so. But that's the first of 11 Test double hundreds for you. Only Bradman with 12 made more. Some international cricketers never reach 200. They, they make loads of centuries but never make doubles. What do you think it is about your... Um, your your skill set combined with your personality that enabled you to reset after reaching three figures and and push ahead and and make it uh, make it really count and go on to make two hundred so often. What made you different on that front? Do you think? Uh, I really don't know. I haven't actually thought about it in, in in that sense. I had my own personal targets initially. I was I used to think twenty international hundreds. You need to make at least twenty international test hundreds to be counted as good. And once you get to that you and you see others pushing, you go, all right, forget 20, let's get to 30, then let's get to 40. That's how you kind of keep moving that benchmark. But consistency is never static in my mind. It's always upwardly mobile. So you have to keep getting better to be consistent, to be at the same level because others are pushing and moving ahead and you've got to, you've got to stay ahead. I was pretty obsessive with my training, uh, pretty detailed in how I trained with my batting. As in just hours in the nets, was it time you spent or was it, it, it technical it, it, stuff? It, it, technical stuff mostly. I spent a lot of time in the nets when I had to. If I didn't, I, I wouldn't. If I needed 10 minutes, I'd take 10 minutes. If I needed three hours, I'll take three hours. Um, so I was, I was pretty detailed about I changed. I, 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 throughout my career, I changed my grip. I've changed my stance. I've changed the width of my feet. I've changed my back lift. I've changed my initial movement. I've changed every single thing possibly that I could of course I, I, I used to think when I could change it because I know something could go wrong so I would change knowing where I started from so I could come back to it there was a reason why I would always say why am I changing this what is it going to do is it going to give me a little bit more time is it going to keep my head still is it going to get me into better positions is it going to give me more power what is it that I'm doing with this and if I could answer it 
really logically and then I try it out in the nets and I go, oh, it's working, all right. Then I would just train that into my muscle memory. So, and, and that's the time I would spend a lot of time in the nets, just grooving, 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 something new. And practice would always be challenging. Just never throw me a half volley, but test me out. Tom Moody, Trevor Penny, we had Trevor Bayliss, um, all of these coaches coming in and all of them are about, you've got to be challenged got to work hard you know you got to you got to you got to get into that mental state of being able to deliver consistently so it is amazing working with these uh, uh, with, with these coaches and then i had my sunil fernando who was my junior coach who would always i would go back to throughout my international career for a couple of hours on a weekend when i was in candy and he'd run through my basics all over again so i had this really good advanced coaching uh, and 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 this rechecking and uh, of of my initial technique from two different perspectives and i thought that was really important to me in terms of resetting after reaching the, the three figures it's basically a very simple system of doing it i get to 100 after that i don't i just don't look at a scoreboard i just keep i just keep batting and probably if i bat half an hour i might take a glance at, at the scoreboard to understand where i am and if i'm close to a 150 i would then think all right i'm going to accelerate here and then pick a couple of bowlers accelerate and then just keep batting again without looking at the scoreboard look up again understand where i am and then they make a decision i'm going to accelerate or i have to absorb pressure here what does the side need all of these things would play into that decision but for some reason i always found the initial 100 get into that three figures first the more difficult thing than getting from 100 to a 200 and the second part was almost like an automatic pilot and and I, I, I just had a method that worked and I didn't try to question it too much or alter it too much I just worked on technique and I knew that if I got to 100 making that second 100 was was a process that I was very comfortable with. There must be a point when you're, say, putting a partnership together of 624 with Mahela Javodna, which is still <laughs> the, the record. I mean, you've got a couple in the top five biggest partnerships ever. There must be a point where you're just sort of in a trance. You're just you're you're not even really there anymore. You you've just you have become batting, and the person has almost ceased to exist. Yeah, I, I, I think so. I mean, I remember that we were 14 for two. Dale Stain uh, bowled me off a no ball. Uh, and Mahila joined me and then we just started batting. We got through that first evening, came back the next day and just batted. And I remember for a session and a half, we were talking very much cricket-oriented things out in the middle, talking about what are they trying to do, what do we have. And as the partnership progressed, after about the second session together, it was, it, we were, I think, on automatic pilot. It was just about talking everything other than cricket after that till we finished the partnership till I nicked behind I think of Andrew Hall but we did have you know chats in the middle about what are they trying to do or how are we going to hit a boundary here or what are we going to do and then I think once we came close to that 500 mark and we're thinking about the biggest partnership at that time the world record which is Roshan Mahanam and Sanajay Surya we're like oh my god we're really close to something here and then going past it was amazing. And I think that was probably the only time that like 50, 60 runs in between those two, before uh, that mark and then getting beyond it was, was probably the only time we actually took stock of where we were. And the rest of the time was just, just bat, just bat and bat. 
enough time to develop the entire business plan for Ministry of Crab. <laughs> uh, I mean, you and Mahalo eventually go into that successful business together, but well, that, that, that relationship, you know, the other day when we were talking to Ian Bell, we spoke of someone being forever linked to one shot, in his case, the cover drive. You, it's to be ever linked with one other player, Mahalo, and you, you'll always be discussed in the same like almost like a couplet, right? Owing to the, the time you played together, the big partnerships, the leadership axis that you form when you're his vice captain and then when you're taking over as captain in 2009 and beyond. Just talk us through a relationship like that when it's a bond that, that extends to in the middle, off the field and how, in all probability, endure to your two old men. Yeah, it, it, it's strange. We're quite different. He's very, very detailed... Uh, he's very organized. I'm, 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 I'm detailed, but I'm not in, not in an organized way. Uh, if, you, if you like take our cricket coffins and you compare it, that's probably the, the mind was in, in, was in complete disarray all the time. Everything is strewn around. I knew where everything was, but it was not, you know, this glove goes here, this one goes there. Yes. Miles was the opposite. And there were a few in our dressing room. It was very, very neat, very organized. Everything had its place, all of that. But we were very similar in the way we thought about cricket, we thought about the evolution of the game in Sri Lanka, what it meant. We didn't agree on everything. We actually disagreed a lot and you'd have these massive arguments, but that really helped us really kind of sound ideas off each other and, and, and have a debate, a really robust, really strong debate, arguments, but then come to a decision where, where we understand that it's, it's the right decision and why that is. Um, and then being able to support him as vice captain in terms of managing things that he didn't need to be bothered with in the team. You know, when you have a leadership group, if you take England right now, in terms of, of Josh Butler, captain of the white ball team, Stokes, and here Moin Ali, Joe Root, who, who disseminate that philosophy through the team and get everyone aligned as to what's happening because a captain can't be the only person driving that through the entire squad. And that's what we had in terms of understanding, okay, this is what needed to happen with the rest of the team to ensure that Mahila as captain had the freedom to go and the time to go and do what he really needed to do. And we looked at a lot of things in a very similar way and we were of a similar age. And I think when I got into the side, he had already played three years almost of international cricket as vice captain. And he was one of the few of, the, of, of where, where I was a peer, you know, I was a similar age uh, and had played against him at age group so we kind of always hung out together spoke to Tilan Samaravira was there and a couple of others of the age so we, it was always this this kind of age the group that had similar in age and and that that kind of started off the whole friendship part of it and then it just carried on through cricket and then beyond into into adventures it's not that we spend a significant amount talking about stuff or having dinners you know with our respective families together or anything of the sort it's just a relationship that's that's continued we actually are quite that you'd be quite surprised to know how differently sometimes we might approach the same thing with the same intent and come up with the same kind of idea as a solution or or a progression to that idea, but it approach it in quite different ways. Are you kind of like, um, do you talk every, every, like, are you on WhatsApp with each other every other day or is it, not, is it kind of that relationship where you're mates and always will have that bond, but it can go a few months yeah. <laughs> without having to chat <laughs> to each other? Absolutely, absolutely. We don't, we don't really talk much at all in, 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 in that sense at all. Uh, we have uh, weekly meetings with our group of, 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 um, of, of people that we're involved in our ventures with. 
So that's the most regular thing. And once in a while, there's a hello, what's happening, um, and, and sharing something that's really important or significant. Other than that, there's no idle chit-chat that happens every day. There's one other moment in that relationship that I remember very vividly. Like, so much of your cricket story is related to World Cups. There's there's you and Adam Gilchrist in 2003 with the you take the catch when he walks off. There's there's the run of finals. You know, you lose the final in 2007. You lose the, the T20 World Cup in 2009 and then 2012. Um, there's the 2011 World Cup. And then you have that moment in 2014, that T20 World Cup final, where you and Mahalo are batting together in the chase. You've held India you run down the target and you get to walk off together. After having lost four finals, you've, you've nailed one late in the piece when you might not have expected that to happen. Can you tell me about that? I guess that span, that experience from frustration and disappointment and, and then whether, whether it was a weight lifting or, or how it felt at the time to have finally got there um, after so many opportunities. Yeah, it is really frustrating, uh, massively frustrating that we weren't winning. We were getting to the finals. We were playing the best cricket, uh, you know, as a side that we ever could and still falling short. Why was it? Uh, was it that we were afraid to admit that this was a World Cup? Were we trying to ignore it? We were trying, going through all these things. But the hardest thing after losing a final, it's not like you've lost a semi-final or you've been knocked out in the early round. It's much easier to digest than losing in the finals because you're just one step away. And then it's a whole four-year cycle of getting ready and trying to put yourself in that position again. And you do it and you again have to go through the same grind. So it's it, the, the, the real tough point is to get back you know, on the horse and get back to the grind of, of churning out four years of, of side building, of performance building and, and, and just you know, kind of getting ready for the next opportunity. I think in 2014, it was going to be our last T20 World Cup before the 2015-50 over one. And... Um, we're pretty pragmatic. Uh, we're thinking, well, it's, Sri Lanka's made so many T20 finals just because we were so obsessive about detail and tactics and strategy rather because we didn't have the power. We had X Factor, we had skill and we had to really know how to use the, that skill as well as we could because that was a key part. In 2014, um, I had a terrible tournament most of the time ex except for the the, the you know maybe except for the final I think and I'd already gone to the coach and, and, and the captain and I, was, I actually the coach um, and told him actually you should really consider dropping me now because we want to win this tournament and uh, I'm not I'm not really helping the side by not scoring runs and I left the decision with them and they they, they, they decided that I should be playing um, and that we had a remarkable performance I think one of the times we I thought we were going to really... I mean, of course, you go there with the intention of winning and you want to, but there is something that happens along the way that tips your belief, and that was Rangana Herat uh, in that match against New Zealand. Uh, they were defending 119, do-or-die effort, and we win by 57 runs, I think, which is incredible considering the, the side New Zealand had at that time. And that kind of tipped the scales in terms of thinking, well, hold on. This is something that... that, that that we are definitely going to win. And then it progressed from then and in that final uh, to be able to score a half century after not doing much at all with the bat throughout the tournament was extremely satisfying because those are the moments that you really want to step up and deliver. Big moments and you want to you you take, take that trophy home. And I remember coming to Sri Lanka and people had lined up, not with, forget the weather, forget rain, heat, humidity, 
from the airport all the way to golf face green in Sri Lanka. It's something that I've never ever experienced. Uh, it was absolutely incredible the amount of joy they we we managed to give back in terms of the the, the, the people of Sri Lanka, and they were dancing in the streets. At this open bus that we went on, it was interesting, an incredible feeling, and very satisfying, like you said, about getting over the line finally. On Red Bull uh, terms, Test cricket, 2007 is a, a total golden year for you. you know, four tests in a row when you score in excess of 150, one of only a handful of players to do that, including you know, Don Bradman again, who there are a number of categories where you and he find yourselves in together. But I think for a lot of Australian listeners, they'll remember that innings down at Hobart, the 192, where you nearly pull off a an extraordinary fourth innings chase at Bell Reeve Oval when you're given out controversially by Rudy Kurtzen. You know, your recollections of, of nearly doing something uh, staggering uh, at, in that point of your career where everything was going right? Yeah, I'd, I'd remember this. I'd, I'd actually got injured in the first practice game, I think in Adelaide. I tore my hamstring the night before we were going for dinner and Tommy Simsek, our physio, was talking about how uh, how many... How, how busy he is because we just spend a lot of time on his table and I kind of told him tell me one instance where I'd come and spend any time on your table and he said oh yeah you're right you don't and I said you know why he said it's because I don't get in- injured and he said Sangha you got to spit three times because you've just jinxed, jinxed yourself I said ah oh, that's never going to happen forget about it next day first run I take in the practice match I tear my hamstring I'm on the ground he runs on I sit him with Tommy going and he's, he's, he's stretching me and I'm, and I'm in my mind I'm quite angry thinking that oh my, if this is a hamstring I'm going to miss perhaps the whole series Tommy Simpson comes the first thing he tells me is I told you last night to split three times but you know, look exactly what I meant this is what happened so I wasn't very happy with Tommy when he said that as well but Tommy was unbelievable he said alright listen let's get off the field we'll get you on a program I'll try and get you back for the second test I was I was like, no chance. I went and got up. We got a scan. It's a grade two hamstring tear. And I remember he was checking up on me the first 24 hours with ice and all of that. Missed the first test. I think it was in Brisbane. Go to Hobart. And I had, a, I had an amazing recovery. I still wasn't 100% fit with my leg to run at absolute full speed. But I was, I was almost there. And then I remember going to bat the first innings getting a half century then getting coming into bat in the second innings and again I just felt absolutely in rhythm I batted a lot in the nets against Lasit Malinga who was also just getting ready to bowl and he nearly cleaned me up a few times in the nets but it's just that you know having that time to myself to work through my injury and then work on my batting really helped to get me and I came in and I was just I mean, the first innings I wasn't exactly in rhythm, I would say, but second innings I was just, I was just flying. And then when I was batting with the tail, it was again autopilot. Get as close as possible to the Australian total. Get as close as possible. I was saying, if you get close, if you get within striking distance, because Australians don't really spread the field, and they're adamant on keeping the field in. I knew that you always were in with a chance. You know, a few boundaries, and you could get a series of boundaries. And we were heading that way. And, and Lasid Malinga was keeping me company. He was batting beautifully as well. Um, and unfortunately, you know, I was given out by Rudy. I mean, um, uh, Rudy, the, the late Rudy Kurtz. And it's, it's, it's so tragic what happened to, to, to Rudy. But, um, and after he gave me out, I remember I was at, 
I think the casino in and and uh, that's where the hotel was. It's mm. a it's it's a casino. I forget what the name of the place. It's got these red carpeted rooms I, and all I, the rest. I can rest say points. it. I've been there. I, I can't tell you what it's called. Yeah. So so every time we played West we, Point. Yeah. West Point. <laughs> yes. Yeah, so that's that's where the team always stayed. Um, and there was a casino at the bottom. I think a small one, and then you had the rooms attached to this. this so so I was at the I was at the bar there having a drink, and Rudy walks in. And he comes up to me and apologizes, looks me in the eye, shakes my hand and says, I'm sorry. And I said, Rudy, that's absolutely fine. Um, I understand. And we sat down, uh, shared a drink and had a good chat. So, uh, you know, that was, that was again a, 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 an amazing gesture from Rudy. He was under no obligation. Mm. And not, a, not a lot of umpires really I do take that effort to come and, and, and shake a player's hand and actually say, it's not gone right I, 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 I might have I might have got it wrong yeah um, and that was amazing so I just remember sitting down and having a chat with him 2009 in, in Pakistan you go through that ordeal of the attack on the Sri Lankan bus and then it seems really symbolically important that you make a point of going back in 2020 with the MCC tour how does that memory sort of what's your relationship with that memory now and 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 what was it like in the lead up to heading back there to complete a circle, as it were? Yeah, I think looking back and even immediately after that attack, I mean, I, I love touring Pakistan. I think the Pakistani people are amazing, so hospitable, so welcoming, and I've never felt threatened or in danger there. Um, you can talk about security failings and et cetera, et cetera, on that tour, in which, which there were quite a few of, not just from the, the, the side of the Pakistan Aboard, but 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 majorly from ours as well um, at the time. But that's life, you know. I, I come from a country at that time that people were going through much more, and uh, and you kind of put it into perspective. It was a it was a a, a really bad experience. Uh, you know, we were lucky that no one really died or was much more extensively injured. Tilan Samaravira was pretty badly hurt. A few of us. Uh, were hurt with shrapnel and etc but it was never going to be something that that put me off pakistan as a cricketing nation as a as a, as, a, as, a, as such a hospitable people and to be able to go back with mcc and help bring cricket back because you know all countries need to be strong at home and to have cricket at home and, and it was important and imperative that pakistan had that same opportunity after what happened in 2009 and to be able to do that and promote cricket and be able to go and play and go to the Liberty Roundabout and, and revisit all of that was, was it was not cathartic at all in terms of you know I never had nerves or I never felt anxiety or anything of the sort you know it was about going back and, and playing cricket uh, in, in a country that loves the sport uh, Kumar, you're a very busy man. You're due across the road. Now, as Jeff and I tend to do, we've prepared quite a lengthy interview here. So I think what might be uh, prudent is if we hit stop here and thank you for your time today and we pick up this conversation for part two at some point in the future. How's that sound? I think that's, that's, that's brilliant. I'm sorry that I do have to go, but I have an appointment at, at Lord's that I need to keep. But it's been brilliant. Thank you so much. And, I, and, and definitely I look forward to the next time that we continue this and do, as you say, part two. Thank you. It's been brilliant. We'll talk again soon. Thank you very much. It's the final word with Adam Collins and Jeff Lemon. Thanks again to Kumar Sangakkara, not only for making time late last week in his very busy schedule in the middle of a series with Sky and so on, but also for agreeing to contribute to part two of this 
discussion around his life in the game and what a, a great story it is. You would have heard there with those long, articulate answers that he's got a lot to say. So uh, it'll be great to do it all again with him for part two. At some stage, I, I reckon that's likely to be early in 2024. As I mentioned off the top of the show, we're making more and more podcasts at the moment. And that's all possible due to the fantastic people who support us on Patreon. Patreon.com forward slash the final word. Get a pledge in, become not only part of the fun, but part of the, the backbone of the final word, allowing us to, to do more and more uh, as the months and years transpire. And I think that's just about enough. Uh, so I'll say goodbye. Uh, thank you for listening. This has been the final word. Adam Collins, Jeff Lemon, Kumar Sangakara. There's a lot more coming up this week, as is always the case. There'll be a, a weekly show dropping midweek. We've got another interview later in the week, story time, as we all build up towards the Men's World Cup, which starts in just two and a half weeks from now. All right, bye for now. I had to go.